I'm sure that many of you in your reading or study or listening and in this and in other traditions sometimes come across ideas or concepts or subjects that at first glance seem, you know, kind of very far-fetched or esoteric. And yet, kind of can't get away from the fact that people keep talking about them, and reading about them, uh, writing about them. You know, we hear, you know, words like no self, and nibbana, enlightenment, and all of these words, which, you know, it seems like they have something to do with what we're doing here. Um, and yet they can seem kind of inaccessible or difficult to understand. One of the terms, one of the subjects that is frequently touched upon by most teachers in this and in other traditions it's the theme of emptiness, understanding emptiness. I think sometimes when people hear that word, you know, it, it conjures up all kinds of like negative associations, you know, like we're going to disappear or dissolve or, you know, end up like a you know, mushroom on a log, you know, with a meaningless life and no direction and, you know, no action, no engagement. And it kind of doesn't look that attractive, you know, when you see it in that light. Sometimes it even looks kind of scary, you know, because we think, well, who would we be? You know, what does emptiness have to do with me? <laughs> you know, where would I be? You know, where's my corner or my position in that? <clears throat> it often seems a kind of an impenetrable theme, but I think it's not. So this evening, I'd like to reflect a little bit upon that theme. You know, Dogen, who is a great, great master of the past, once said that meditation is to study the self, and to study oneself is to forget oneself. To forget oneself is to be awakened by all things. And to be awakened by all things is to let body and mind of self and others fall away. Well, inevitably in this practice, it's no difficult, at least the first part's not difficult to see, is it? Inevitably in this practice, we study the self all day long. You know, in our thoughts, our actions, our reactions, our likes, our dislikes, our falling asleep, our waking up, our aversions, we study the self all day long. In fact, much of our life is actually spent studying the self consciously or unconsciously. Here we do it consciously. We are learning, essentially, in our practice to liberate our own mind and heart. That's the essence of this practice, the essence of this teaching. In fact, everything that we do in the practice, 
You know, when we sit, when we walk, when we breathe, when we're mindful, when we learn to pay attention to everything in our days, everything that we do is actually in the service of that liberation. We're learning how to heal. We're learning how to release the places of conflict and struggle and contractedness in our hearts and minds. We're learning to release some of those very sticky places of fear and grasping, confusion. How? Not by wishing them away, not by pretending they don't exist, but by coming close to them, by being interested, by paying attention. Essentially, we're learning to release ourselves from misunderstanding and alienation through wisdom. We're learning to release some of the fears and angers, divisions, through loving-kindness and compassion. So you can sense in our journey that it's not always so much a question of doing, 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 reaching for something else. But in many ways, the simplicity of our practice or the direction of our practice is almost one of undoing, of untangling the knots of misunderstanding that can keep us tied to those contracted and fearful spaces. In mindfulness practice, you know, the Buddha said it really simply. You know, know when the mind is contracted, distracted, when the mind is affected by wanting, by anger, by unconsciousness, and also encouraged us very simply to know when the mind is filled with appreciation, with loving-kindness, compassion, to know when our mind is rooted in equanimity, when it's peaceful, when it's serene, to know when the mind is bound, and to know when the mind is liberated. Now, we would probably, you know, you might want to sit there and say, well, I, the unliberated mind, I really know too well. You know, this is what I'm familiar with. And sometimes, you know, we start to maybe look at a question. What does the liberated mind look like? You know, what was the Buddha talking about when he talked about the liberated mind? He sometimes described it as a mind that dwells nowhere, as a mind that clings to nothing, as a mind that's not bound by any definition, nor clings to its definitions of anything else. Sometimes described it as a mind that's not deceived, not fooled, that's not tricked, that's not hooked anywhere. And then so when the Buddha talked about the liberated mind, he talked about the mind being unshakable, 
receptive, fluid and open and certainly said the liberated mind does not suffer. God is radiant and immeasurable and light. Now I know this, you know, we can hear that, you know, it sounds great. And automatically that feeling of it sounds great, you know, wouldn't that just be terrific? Is followed by another thought that says, well, you know, that's too far away. That's too far away for me too far away from this mind that I experience on a moment-to-moment level. It, you know, he's talking about somebody else's mind, some other creature. And then when we make that distance and we make that separation, then it's very easy for us to set all of this up as a kind of unattainable goal. or as something, you know, that we need to, to strive for, to, to, to gain, to achieve. And yet, what's the essence of this practice? What's the essence of this teaching? It's not talking about striving for something outside of this moment or outside of where and who we are. In fact, the essence of this teaching is always to turn towards this moment, to turn towards what we're experiencing, to look deeply within what we are experiencing. And part of that understanding, if you expand that understanding of mindfulness, then we also come to see that the liberated mind is actually not going to be found somewhere else. It's not going to be found outside of this mind. And that that immeasurability, that unshakability, that fluidity, it's not dependent then, well, it's not dependent actually, on taming or subduing or overcoming or transcending this mind you know, taming and subduing and overcoming, this is a kind of effort that is based upon a a dualistic thinking. That, you know, it has to be somewhere else, so I have to get this out of the way so I can get over to this other place where I'm supposed to be or where I'm trying to get to. The kind of immeasurability or unshakability that is talked about is rests upon not getting rid of this mind, but on liberating, we might say, this mind from its own kind of misunderstanding. And misunderstanding, we see, gets expressed in a whole number of different ways of Restlessness, agitation, resistance, judgment, uh, projection, goals, achievement. All of this is the expression of misunderstanding. We might say that those states are the mind of a Buddha with amnesia. 
it's just forgotten what is true. And what we're learning in mindfulness practice is to recollect or to rediscover what is true and to sense that this mind in itself is a reflection of emptiness. Now, when emptiness is talked about, it's important to understand that it's not some, you know, transcendent state. You know, it's not some fleeting, passing experience. It's not some, you know, divine meditation moment. It's not even a, a kind of personal attribute. It's an understanding. It's a way of seeing. It's not the absence of anything. You know, at times when we hear the words emptiness, it must mean something's gone, something's absent, something's missing, you know, and, and then we think about, you know, empty spaces, an empty glass, an empty dinner plate, you know, an empty cushion, an empty hat. And when we think of it as the absence of things, that's when we fall into this kind of somewhat futile, strenuous effort to try and get rid of things. You know, we think, oh, I'll get rid of these thoughts, you know. I'll get rid of these feelings. I'll, I'll get, get rid of these ideas. I'll get rid of these memories. And somehow when I've got, you know, wiped the slate clean, you know, then I've got emptiness. You don't have emptiness then. You just wipe the slate clean, ready to fill up again any moment. You know, it's just there. So that's not what emptiness is. Instead, we have to start thinking about what might emptiness look like on a full dinner plate, on a, in a filled glass, in a body on a cushion, on a house with, in a house with furniture, in a mind with thoughts, in a body with sensations. What does emptiness look like there? That's not dependent on getting rid of anything. Buddha Dasa was a great Thai teacher of the forest tradition. And one of the allies that he really included in his teaching was nature. That in understand that nature reflected the Dharma, and that by really studying nature, we can we could come much more simply and easily to understand our own nature. And you know, in my practice, you know, the, the teaching of Buddhadasa has always been a very had a very powerful impact, because in a way, it does simply illuminate so much of, of what we experience within our own inner world. It doesn't take, you know, a neurosurgeon to see the processes within nature. What do we see, you know, just in your days here, as you've been outside in this incredibly changing season? What do you see in nature? Well, studying nature, we see this 
It's a very natural process of change, don't we? Arising and passing. There's nothing mysterious about it. We see spring has come. A few days ago, it was winter. Spring has come. Tomorrow, actually, here, it could be winter again. But in most places, normal places, <laughs> spring kind of turns into summer. You know, and summer sort of turns into fall, and fall turns into winter once more. And we see this very natural arising and passing. We see the birds in their nests, and the birds leave their nests. We see, you know, the empty branches and the trees right now. Come back in a few weeks. They'll be abundant with leaves and color. And a few months later, once more, they'll be gone. I have a garden at home. You know, it's one thing of the things I love to do. And there's always those moments in the autumn when you plant bulbs. You know, you have this thing in your hand, you know. It looks kind of dead. You know, it's got a few straggly little roots hanging out, you know, and it's sort of woody. And you think, this, look, this looks really dead, you know. And you put it in the ground. And for months, nothing happens or nothing seems to be happening, does it? And then one morning, you go outside and you see these shoots coming up. And out of this thing that was apparently so lifeless has sprung all of this life. And we know, actually, that even when it was invisible or seemingly dormant, it was in the process of turning into something else. And a flower appears. And sure enough, months later, it's going to wilt and fall away. When we also look at that process, we see that the flower doesn't look the same as the bulb. You know, the bulb was this dead thing over here, apparently looking dead thing. Here we have this colorful, alive, vibrant flower. They don't look a lot exactly the same. And yet they're not separate, are they? I mean, the flower was born of the bulb. And we also see they're all different. Like, the daffodil doesn't become a rose. You know, if I plant a daffodil bulb, I'm not going to get a rose, no matter how much I wish for it. There's this ongoing process of arising and passing and change. Also, when we reflect and stay in touch with nature, we say, well, nobody's actually making all this happen, really. You know, that the, everything that appears and fades away, that arises and passes, because of conditions. You know, you've got the condition of the soil and the seasons and the sun and the rain and the person who plants the bulb. And all those conditions com combine together for a particular process to happen. Now, if you change those conditions, you know, like if my, my dog dug up my bulb or it didn't rain or the sun never came out, it's not as if nothing would happen. Something would happen, but a different process would occur because different conditions would be present. This process that is so clear in nature is, of course, no different than the process that is happening everywhere else in life. In fact, we can't find anything that is independent of it. It is also happening in our own nature, in our bodies, our minds, our feelings, 
in everything that we see and hear and touch and feel and experience. Here too we see the seasons of change, the arising and the passing, the appearing and the fading away. This is not a mystery to us in our own life. We were all once babies and toddlers and small children and teenagers, youth, adulthood, aging, all the different formations of our life. These two arise and pass and appear and fade away and arise and pass because of conditions. We see it too in our thoughts and our feelings. If you put together any thought, the feeling about it, the memory or association with it, the like or the dislike, you put all that together and you have something you call anger or greed or sadness, and that's going to change too. As the conditions change, that's also going to change. You know, you put together a smell from the kitchen, a nose to smell it, a mind to identify with it, a like or an association, and you may have the formation of a body appearing at the dining room an hour before lunch, or one that misses lunch altogether. You put together a body sensation, aversion or fear, you know, put together a sensation in your knee and fear or aversion. And what have you got? You've got the formation of the suffering meditator. Put together a sound in the ear to hear it, the association, the feeling, and you have a particular form of experience. What we see all the time are conditions and formations mixing and blending together, changing, and then we have our sense of that moment. It's a lot easier for us to accept that process in nature, to attend to it, to attune ourselves to it, than to accept the changing seasons within our own nature and the changing conditions within our own nature. There's a piece from a Chinese master said, you know, we accept the graceful falling of mountain cherry blossoms, but it's much harder for us to fall away from our own attachment to the world. Something else that we perhaps see in the changes and the formations in nature, they're not really arguing with themselves. You know, like the emerging shoot of the daffodil is not kind of panting there saying, you know, I can't wait to be a beautiful flower that everybody's going to admire. You, you, you know, the daffodil is not kind of longing to be a rose and doesn't regret the season of wilting. In the, shout, in the fading away is not shouting, saying, oh, wait a minute, this shouldn't be happening. I should last a lot longer, you know. What's the difference? 
we have consciousness. And within consciousness, there is tremendous potential for argument. <laughs> we see that. Tremendous potential for argument. We do a lot of arguing, arguing with the moment. You know, we say this shouldn't be happening. This should last longer. I should be different the kind of long list of likes and dislikes and the way of judging and measuring and the ideas of what I should be and who I must become and what and who you are and all the cascade of agitation and restlessness and busyness that follows in the wake of our descriptions are freezing things in time and are believing in those descriptions. When we describe ourselves or describe anything just by its appearance of the moment, then things don't really seem very empty. They seem very full. And then the ease, perhaps, that we sense in nature is not always reflected in the changes that are happening in our own bodies and minds and hearts. We get caught. You know, we get caught easily in the appearances of the moment. We get caught in the flow. You know, we, we struggle with this thought or this sound or this feeling, the ideas and images of who we are, and that's when we suffer. Why? You know, I mean, I mean it's good to remember that a lot of suffering is actually quite optional. This is, you know, useful. A useful piece of information. <laughs> you know, it's actually a lot of it's quite optional. So why does it happen? That's where we get interested. You know, not just that this is suffering, but what's the cause? You know, why, why are we suffering? And that's where we, we see that Often what is introduced into the ebb of flow of life, you know, whether we say is outer life or inner life, really doesn't matter. But what's introduced that often distorts the simple truth or the understanding of the emptiness of that moment is, a, is another factor. It's the condition of clinging of holding, of grasping, of identification, whatever word we want to use, it makes something happen. What happens when we introduce, or when, it's wrong to say when we introduce, as if there's a choice. What happens when clinging or identification is introduced is that we try and fix things in space and in time and in solidity. We designate it an identity that is separate and apart from everything else. Nagarjuna, who was one of the great Indian philosophers, once said that clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free be no one. Well, clinging is really insisting on being someone. I am 
You know, it's such potent words. I am. And then we fill in the blank. Fearful, inadequate, self-conscious, angry. Every time we fill in the blank, we are insisting on being someone. We are fixing ourselves in space and time. We might say that that clinging is actually the condition for amnesia, for forgetting freedom. And we might say that non-clinging is the condition for remembering freedom, for learning to rest in emptiness. We identify or find ourselves clinging or identifying to lots of different things. Sometimes we identify with a thought, you might have noticed. And what we do when, we, when that happens, we become what we think. Have you noticed that? We identify with an agitated thought or a painful thought or a wanting thought, and we become agitated, demanding, expecting, impatient. Who were you before you identified with that thought? Were you agitated? Were you fearful? Were you impatient? We forget who we were before that thought arose. We identify with a feeling. Sometimes we identify with emo an emotion. And that's what we become. You know, anger arises, sadness arises, you know, uh, remorse arises. Different, all these different feelings and emotions arise. None of them in themselves are an obstacle to anything or a problem at all. But you can see that movement to kind of take hold of them. And in that movement to take hold of them, you can feel your sense of being contract. Suddenly, that's who we are. And it's almost as if, I've always been like that. You say, I've always been a fearful person. Well, were you five seconds ago before that emotion arose? You know, we say, I've always been an angry person. We've entirely forgotten that five minutes ago, you know, we were extending loving kindness to the world, you know. Suddenly, we're this angry person. The grasping and the clinging makes us forget who we were before that feeling arose. We identify with an experience, and the same thing happens. The experiencer is formed. You know, I'm doing better, I'm doing worse, I'm improving, I'm, in, I'm failing. You know, I'm progressing, I'm regressing. I'm, I'm the enjoyer, I'm the sufferer. Who were we before that particular experience arose? When appearances are mistaken to be the truth and sort of become the reality of the moment, you know, then we get the long monologue of words and judgments and preferences that really f serve to solidify that fixing. And this doesn't just happen inwardly. It happens outwardly, too. 
You know, have you ever noticed on a retreat, you know, most everybody has somebody on a retreat that they really hate. They've never met them. They really hate them. You know. Nothing, you know, nothing major has happened. They haven't juked it out in the hallways, you know, or anything like that. It's their haircut, you know, or the color of their socks, their walking style, how they open a door. There's always somebody who gets your goat on a retreat. You ever notice what happens, you know, how you find yourself seizing upon the particular of someone? And it's like, that's not enough, you know. It's not enough that just they... They belched once when they were sitting beside you at the table, you know. It's like, you've got to get this whole long list going, don't you? It's like, oh, not only do they do that, but they do that too, you know. And, and look at what else they do. And look how they walk. And look how that schmuck sits, you know. And it's like you've got this whole long list going. And everything is being added to it to solidify this image, to solidify this clinging. Is there any freedom in that? Absolutely not. Do we give that person the opportunity to be someone else? Absolutely not. Do we give ourselves the opportunity to be other than this label or image when we keep adding to it this long monologue of description, of, of detail? Absolutely not. The clinging reinforces and solidifies the solidity and the reality of that moment. So we're doing something different here in this practice. We're learning not to attach so strongly to our views of reality. An example of this, some of you have heard me tell this story. A couple of years ago, I was teaching in Israel on the kibbutz, and, and in the meditation centers in Israel, it seems like everywhere else in this world, become the local residences for the dogs who live nearby. You know, the same there. I came out of the office one day, and there was this dog lying on the ground by the office door. It had this huge growth coming out of its head, even like a vast tumor. And I had this moment, and I looked at it. You know, and I was so taken aback and so horrified that uh, you know there were a few moments of no thought. You know, just kind of yeah. <laughs> and, and then the thoughts came in. You know, and you know, first of all, there were a few little suspicions about the people living there. You know, were they looking after this dog? You know, who was taking care of it? Blah blah blah. I kind of let go of that story, and I thought, well, what this dog needs is a lot of meta, and it's really suffering. The poor dog, you know, it's growth the size of its head. So I spent the morning doing meta practice for this dog, you know, may it be happy, may it be peaceful, may it be free from suffering. It was quite a nice morning doing this meta practice. I went, I went back a few hours later, came out of the office. The dog was sitting up with its tumor sitting on the ground beside it. <laughs> I looked. This, this dog. <laughs> At first, I thought, miracle. You know? <laughs> this mess is really powerful, you know? <laughs> Fix this dog right up. <laughs> and then I realized that this tumor was a rock. <laughs> 
And the, the desert rocks were exactly the same color as the dog's fur. And this dog never had a tumor to begin with. It was a perfectly happy dog, you know. You know, and, and already, you know, it wasn't a terrible delusion to be in, uh, in that it gave me the opportunity to do meta practice for a number of hours. <laughs> but it was so startling to me how solid that view of reality was. Like I hadn't even, you know, probed underneath it. There was just that perception, that assumption, that conclusion, then the acting upon it. And it had been so solid, and it was so wrong. You know, it was utterly, utterly wrong. And you know, it was kind of—it was like one of those moments where you say, "Aha!" <laughs> you know, "Aha!" This might apply to more things. <laughs> you know, this could possibly apply to more things. We see often that. <coughs> instead of really kind of really attuning ourselves and paying attention to that ebb and flow of experience, that we tend to subscribe so strongly to our descriptions. And some of our beliefs, of course, change so quickly. You know, you can sit at breakfast. I mean, many of you have seen this on a retreat, you know. You can sit at, at breakfast, you know, you're a glowing sunbeam of happiness. You know, and everything is so wonderful, and everybody around you is so wonderful. And, you know, you're sort of basking in the light of that well-being. Sure, it's going to be there forever. You know, and who turns up at lunchtime, you know? It's like, there you are again, same seat, same table, and you're seething, you know, cursing the world. It's like one thing changes into another. And yet our tendency is to get so hooked, to believe so strongly in that moment. Some of the ways that we fix ourselves actually have quite a long history, a heavy weight. You know, we've kind of carried them through our lives. I'm useless, I'm inadequate, I'm unlovable. They're very painful beliefs. Some of them arise much more quickly and pass much more quickly. What would happen if we didn't take hold of any of the judgments? Not to say they don't arise, but what would happen if we didn't take hold of any of the judgments? If we didn't take hold of any of the descriptions, the images, the beliefs? If we didn't take hold of anything at all? If we no longer fixed anything, maybe we wouldn't be fixed anywhere either. You know, maybe they would, we would open into this tremendous sense of space and freedom. Maybe we wouldn't any longer be confined in those roles and identities of the experiencer, the thinker, the sufferer, the doer. It doesn't mean that life would stop. You know, life would still keep happening. You know, sounds, sights, thoughts, feelings, changes in our body, other people would still keep happening. It would still be rich. We would still be engaged. 
we would still be touched by that richness, but we wouldn't be lost anywhere. This is not actually an esoteric teaching. It's not difficult for us to see. We can see it in our own experience. I would invite you to try and find the self, your sense of I, apart from a description. Try and find a sense of I alone. Just standing alone, just I. We don't get that. The sense of I doesn't make any sense without a definition, without a description. The thinker doesn't arise without the thought. The experiencer arises with the sounds, with the feelings, with the sensations, with the memory. I am defined by what I experience. You are defined by how I experience you, inwardly and outwardly. But what happens if we just attend to that arising and passing of life, its appearance, its disappearance, according to its own nature? We can be present and not bound by anything. What we introduce through clinging and holding is a process, what is called in this tradition, of papancha. And papancha is a, the proliferation, the abundance of thoughts that tend to surround what we cling to. Our speculations, our preferences, our ideas, our projections, <coughs> our wants, our needs, all the thoughts which come which end up in those conclusions that say, I am and you are. They lead us to places that are often our personal world. It's basically our personal world. Again, and you know, something else I, I kind of encountered on the same retreat in Israel, that the kibbutz that we were sitting in was right next door to this major army camp, you know, and all day long you would hear all these commands being shouted out and marching up and down. And, you know, it all sounded very fierce right there. And we were sitting right here. And it was this kind of weird juxtaposition of, of scenarios. And one night we were sitting, it was very, very quiet. And suddenly outside the window, you know, you could suddenly hear this ba 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 And I had this thought, you know, my thought that arose. Isn't it nice? The young soldiers are having a fireworks display. <laughs> I thought, that's so nice. All that tough training they've been in, they're getting to relax and have a fireworks display. As in this, this well-being for them and happiness for them. And I came out of the sitting, you know, and I said to one of the managers, wasn't that nice? I know, they had a fireworks display. I said, that was machine guns. They were training with live ammo. And I was sitting there remembering my horrible days in the army and how much I hated that. I thought, well, here are these two same sounds, these two entirely different worlds. When we get sucked into our papancha, we end up in those worlds. And somehow with our practice, we're learning to simplify that papancha. 
Like, what does it mean just to hear, just to see, just to feel, without always trying to fix it in this familiar context we have of what I know, you know, and what's familiar to me? Identification or clinging is kind of what gives energy to this sense of self. And sometimes we, you know, we call it the active face of ignorance. You know, the active face in ignorant, of ignorance is, is believing the impermanent to be imper- uh, believing the impermanent to be permanent. The active face of ignorance is mistaking pleasure for happiness, for believing there to be a solid core of self where actually it may be quite transparent and not independent of its belief systems. And when we get sucked into or caught in that flow of ignorance rather than truth, that's when we suffer. You know, it's called wrong view. Rodney mentioned it. It's called wrong view. You know, we get a lot, get into a lot of trouble in our lives when, when we mistake pleasure for happiness, you know, because then we're caught in this tug of war of trying to get more pleasure and less unpleasant. You know, teaching a family course here years and years ago, you know, I asked these little kids, you know, you know, like, what happens when you go through life always wanting something, always needing something? You know, and they sat there stunned for a few minutes, you know, these little kids says, trouble. <laughs> Isn't it? Trouble. And then you got it, please, you know, you don't need to remember anything else in your life, just remember this, you know. We get into a lot of trouble when we're trying to make things last whose nature is to pass away. You know, whether it's our bodies, our experience, uh, you know, the thought of the moment, how much trouble we get into when we're making, trying to make things, maintain things whose nature is to pass away. Can you feel the tension of that? And we get an awful lot of trouble when we insist on being someone, when we define ourselves by the contents of our minds. When we see this activity of, you know, I, I think many people have a mistaken impression in practice and they think that this is the annihilation of self-organization. It's not. We are not here to annihilate the self. We are not here to destroy the I. The Buddha, Nagarjuna, once spoke about the Buddha's teaching about self. He said, the Buddha speaks of self and also speaks of no self. He also says there is nothing which is either self or not. Sometimes this is said that the Buddha speaks of self and the Buddha speaks of no self. And between the two, life flows. We're not here to get rid of anything but to see the emptiness. And the emptiness means to see the interdependence of all formations. That nothing exists apart and separate. And nothing gets in the way of emptiness. When we're tempted to, tempted to make something out of emptiness, you know, it becomes an object to gain. If we try to make nothing out of it, we fall into sloth and torpor. It's one of the great mysteries and the great paradoxes of this practice, 
You know, at times we're encouraged and exhorted to make heroic efforts, in fact, sometimes to make the effort until you sweat beads. And other times you hear at some point in your practice, you're going to look back on these heroic efforts to become and to get and to get rid of and see them as nothing more than futile actions performed in a dream. It's a paradox for us to embrace. There is appearance and there is emptiness, and they are not separate. We need to make the effort to untangle the knots. We need to make the effort to be with what is. We need to make the effort to be intimate with the moment. And we make the effort to be aware. But then we think of awareness as a mirror that reflects all things. Sometimes there are our appearances in awareness, and they are reflected. The mirror has no preferences. Whatever appears is embraced. Sometimes there is nothing appearing in the mirror, and that is equally just fine. The mirror reflects itself. And we learn to rest within that, that awareness, which embraces and reveals all things. And that is where we find the unshakability. It's where we find the immeasurable nature of mind. It is where we find the vastness of our own mind. We take just a couple of moments together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.